a calming environment is anxiety producing for the PTSD person and kind of a chaotic environment is calming for them. And, and so we have this kind of reversal of the mechanism and that's what makes it difficult to treat. Cause what do you do? What happens too often is like a person has PTSD and say, Oh, well, you know, we're going to meditate. Well, that's like pretty much the worst thing you could ask that nervous system to do. Hey guys, let me just say, before we get into today's episode, a lot of the conversation with myself and the guests gets quite technical, but if you're patient and you don't give up on the episode, each time you think it's getting too technical, the answer and the simplicity comes. Enjoy. Well, hello and welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm your host, Timothy Maurice, and I appreciate you choosing this episode. Today, we explore how to have a more youthful brain and how to rewire your brain to promote mental health. My mission is to bring you the world's best thinkers, scientists, and brain practitioners to ensure you understand your brain and the brains of your family, colleagues, and consumers. To bring you this insight today, I'm joined by Guy Otishaw, who is a craniosacral therapist and founder of Bhakti Wellness Center, and he's on a mission to support mental health, reverse brain aging, and help your brain stay youthful longer. Guy, welcome. How are you? Good morning. It's a delight to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much for making time. Where are you in the world, by the way? Sure. So I am in um, basically Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. So technically St. Louis Park out in the suburbs. But yes, here in Minnesota, where we're just starting to flirt with fall. Lovely. Lovely. Your winters are quite intense there. Bordering on brutal, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I think if I was if I was a native Minnesotan, I would say yes to that. But I'm actually from Canada and kind of (laughs) up in the middle of nowhere in Canada. So by comparison, uh, the winters here are mild, but still, it's it's an experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into your fascinating work where you use technology to promote brain health. But first, we have to get to know you by having a little fun with a feature called Inside the Mind. I'll ask you seven questions. You'll get two options, and you can only choose one. Can we do it? Absolutely. Here we go. Number one, whiskey or wine? Whiskey. I mean, that comes with being Canadian. (laughs) Memory or vision? I'm going to have to go with memory. Mm. Burger or fries? Fries all day long. (laughs) We are part of the same bloodline then. Canada or Mexico? Oh man. Well, Canada's my homeland, but if if you're from there, you really want to go to Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> but so I'm going to have to pick Canada cuz that's where my family is. So I was going to say we've got quite a uh, listening in uh, listenership in Canada. I didn't want you to betray your people. Nope. Number 5, driving a car or driverless cars? Of driving a car and there's just I, 
again, from Canada, Canada is a big country. You drive mm. a lot. And now being down here, it's about a thousand miles to home. Uh, I think there's nothing better than to get in the car and do a 16 hour drive. And it's like a 16 hour meditation. Ah, and, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and driving is part of it, right? Like when yeah. we get into the show, we're talking about the brain, um, like having, being bodily occupied with the process of driving is what allows it to be a meditation. And so, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Number six, sunrise or sunset? I'm going to go sunset because I am not a morning person. So <laughs> it's going to be sunset. Okay. And finally, number seven, brain health or heart health? Ooh. You know, I'm going to go brain health. <laughs> and, and, and I'll, Beautiful. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of why. So my father-in-law, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to kind of take him through hospice. And he had his mind right to the last moment. And there was something just utterly graceful about that, even though his body had failed him um, in so many ways, that his mind was there right to the last moments. Um, it just felt like when I go, that's the way I want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Guy, thank you so much for allowing us to go inside your mind. So let's open up this conversation with, I'm assuming the question most people have on their mind. After trauma, after extreme stress periods, doing a lot of decline, after a lot of decline, is it possible to bring our brains back to a more youthful and healthier optimal state? Yes. We can mm. move on now. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, that's that's exactly what what we do, you know, every day in the clinic. And and now, you know, the our uh one of my my businesses is, is virtual, so it's in home. And so we have a, a growing population of clients that are just doing in-home uh brain health uh treatment. And and yes, uh, uh I think what's I mean the, What's not been appreciated, broadly appreciated, is that the, the brain is an organ in, in, you know, you mentioned the heart, you know, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, it, it's an organ. And if when we think of the brain as an organ that has, it has functions that it performs and it has a, a unique biology and anatomy and physiology. And, but when we address it directly, there's so much we can do for the brain and because mm -hmm. the brain, unlike, well, it's not true that it's unlike. So the brain has a, a, a novel uh, quality in that it's largely made out of neurons and, and they as cells respond quickly, unlike uh, tissues, which respond slowly. So you can do mm -hmm. much the same with cells as, as, as neurons or, you know, tissue based cells and neurons only neurons respond faster um, yes. you know, in seconds yeah. rather than minutes or hours and Wait, so before, just, before we go too yeah, far deep yeah, yeah, into please. this 
I have to I have to just say, you know, I'm sure there are people listening going, did you say this man is a craniosacral therapist? What on <laughs> earth is that? And you also have a you're a CTO. You've got a technology background. How on earth did you even get into this before we go deeper inside of what's happening inside of the brain? What is a craniosacral therapist? And then how did you get into this as a CTO? <laughs> yeah. 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 My my background is is a head scratcher. Um, so let's see. So I've been practicing for over 30 years. Um, started off uh, in university and I was in kind of pre-med courses. So I was doing the anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology and molecular biology and all of that and hating it. Um, and, and so it was actually my mom who said, you know, you should go to massage school. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Your mother said you should go to massage school. Yeah, I know. Did I hear that right? You did. It's, it's, I know I have the same reaction in my head when I say it, because like what mother (laughs) does that? Um, but I would say it was, it was a mom who could see that her, her, her son wasn't happy and wasn't thriving in, in that environment. And she had, she had a sense. Um, so I, I'd, I'd been into kind of like, you know, hands-on healing type stuff, like early in my life, um, you know, kind of late teens. And, and I think she just saw that there was an aptitude there. And, and so she made this, this thing, this, this proposal. And, and again, being a small town in Saskatoon, this was not a thing, right? I mean, this is, this, this massage is not a thing. So I had to come down to the States to go to school. It's the only place, the closest place there was an actual school to go. But r- literally within a few weeks, I realized this, this educational opportunity was everything that my university education wasn't. It had to do with people and people as, as like whole beings as opposed to what I was learning in my, you know, uh, pre-med classes, which was we were a collection of parts and we were just kind of a machine and you just needed to, you know, get the mm. parts ordered and everything would be fine. <laughs> in my holistic education, we were, we were really dealing with beings and it was the, the subject, the person that mattered and not the parts. And, and, th- and that clearly, like, that's what I was looking for. Because from there, my, you know, my, my, my passion in my career just took off. And, and, and so I've had kind of a, a, you know, a multi-track career over those 30 years. Um, You know, one of the first things I I started to get into was integrative medicine before integrative medicine was, was a, even a word, Um, but very much on the, you know, then it was kind of alternative medicine, then it was complementary medicine and then became integrative medicine, but started working kind of on the clinic side and, and building integrative clinics and then eventually kind of built my own integrative clinic and, and had one of the largest integrative clinics in the country. And we, we, we were very kind of diverse in terms of what we offered. So I had a chance to be around, um, you know, doctors, chiropractors, uh, acupuncturists, mental health providers, um, massage. And that's therapy. what you mean by integrative integrative you, you integrated integrated. several disciplines correct yep so at some cool. point we had we had 31 different providers within the the clinic and we put the together space okay integrative teams around a particular patient based on what it. needed and and so you might have a, a a doctor a nurse an acupuncturist and a reiki provider as part of a care team and i see you know seeing that cross-disciplinary 
discussion and and it was just a really a, a wonderful um experience to see what can happen in healthcare when you have all these diverse opinions to come to bear on us again as these really infinite beings what happens if you have more care for the breadth of that beingness so for for me though i paralleled that with my own personal private practice where i went from kind of the orthopedic side dealing mostly with um, treatment resistant chronic pain and then into so cranial sacral therapy and cranial sacral therapy is an offshoot of osteopathic medicine so cranial osteopathy um, cranial sacral therapy is a is a offshoot of that so i spent 9 years in school for that i spent 20 years practicing still do um, but i got started to specialize in uh, trauma so physical trauma psychoemotional trauma and the brain that became kind of my area of specialty and then at some point got introduced to bioelectric medicine and then within that kind of 12 years of practicing bioelectric medicine towards the end here the last 6 years really into the brain and so using bioelectric medicine to address the brain directly and again that's that's one of the things that i think right now what's happening in the brain health space is the more and more we appreciate the brain as an organ itself and the more and more we develop methodologies to treat it directly and not indirectly right so i'd say something like psychotherapy is largely an indirect approach to the brain yes uh, yep and even if you're doing something like um like a a brain based um uh ophthalmological approach where you're using the eyes to try and leverage the brain from our perspective that's still an indirect approach in that you're using the eyes to to change brain function where we would say just go directly to the brain treat the organ itself um you know you, you talked about cardiology we could say you know like doing exercise to address the heart it's good like like do it but that's indirect there's ways in which directly to treat it so you can go straight to the heart <laughs> straight to the heart of it exactly so we go straight to the brain of it um and so for me, fixing our relationship we're going to go straight to the heart <laughs> tweak the heart a little bit the relationship will work out <laughs> absolutely yes yes um so for it. me this so so right now you know i would say so yes so i'm a so i'm a, a cto a chief technical officer of cerebral fit uh so we're kind of cerebral fit's a technology based company um but i have you know bakti wellness center my big integrative center i have uh the bakti brain health clinic where we are kind of omnivorous in treating the brain directly so neuroimaging uh, neurofeedback neurostimulation i have the minnesota brain health clinic where we specialize in alzheimer's dementia prevention and treatment so we just do the bredesen protocol and then uh, cerebral fit uh, where we do same kind of thing only with devices and home based and then i have my uh, i have another clinic there's a kind of a, a chiropractic clinic so um so so you know i my interests are diverse so C- cto because of cerebral fit and then i spend probably most of my time these days kind of more in the kind of like as a psychophysiologist like in that space I working see. kind of brain and body and and then depending on the client it might be more body than brain or more brain than body got it, it. got it be, yeah cranial sacral or it might be devices 
stuff. So <laughs> for a lot of people who are sitting there going, wow, you guys just threw out a lot of words that mm-hmm. um, are fairly new. <laughs> you know, the a craniosacral therapist kind of massages the brain, massages, just to, just, just simplify that a little You're, bit for us. Yeah. And, and also yeah, yeah. into your integrative approach, I think what's clear, and I want to make this super clear, that if you have a particular illness, you go into one of your wellness centers and you may get somebody who's massaging you, maybe doing energy work, you may have somebody working, giving you some sort of medicine, but it's it's a holistic look at your health. And that's the angle we're coming at this conversation from, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I just want to make that clear because I don't think it's common. I don't think it's that common in many parts of the world. And I think the word, that's one of the reasons I wanted you on the show. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's tragically too uncommon. Yes. And, and I will say like having spent 30 plus years kind of chewing on the integrative medicine bone, um, uh, I, I'm at a point where I'm willing to kind of let it go as, as a thing that is going to happen anytime soon. Okay. Uh, and, and, and I would just, you know, just to say simply, you know, kind of the why of it is, um, the cost, right? Like okay. I, I, I have never really found a way to make it affordable. And that's the biggest reason why we don't see it as in our systems of healthcare, because there isn't a way to, to pay for, like, how do you pay for a doctor, uh, a nurse, a psychologist, uh, an acupuncturist, you know, uh, and a Qigong practitioner all on one care team, <laughs> you know, your, your healthcare bill yeah. would be $3,000 sure. visit. And yeah, and it just, you know, so we haven't, we haven't come up with a solution from the, from the payer side of how to make this type of healthcare affordable, even though we can see in clinics like mine, and there are a few other clinics um, around that the outcomes are better. Yes. But it's how to pay for those outcomes that has eluded us. And again, at scale, because you can do it in a niche population and maybe a high income population. Sure, sure. But you can't do it as a healthcare system for for everybody. Yeah. Okay. And just um, just the craniosacral therapist yeah, craniosacral, specifically, yeah. what does what do they do? Yeah. Sure. So that, that's a great question. I love it. I mean, that's an entire show, and actually, it does map <laughs> onto the bioelectric side, w- which we may spend more time talking about. But but um, so craniosacral, it's a, it's a whole form of of medicine in and of itself. So again, it comes out of osteopathic medicine. In osteopathic medicine, the general belief is with hands-on healing, you can treat most anything in terms of a healthcare issue, right? And, it, and it's okay. not unlike, say, Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, where you have an idea of, of say, chi or prana, and that, uh, that health or health is a balance of those forces, and disease is an imbalance of those forces. And the practitioner's job is to balance those forces in the body and balance equals health. And so craniosacral, we say the same thing, only it comes from a Western standpoint. So it's it's a little bit more grounded in kind of um, you know, anatomy and physiology, but but this to, to try and say something meaningful quickly. So you've got a we've got a skull. The skull is made up of bones. 
we presume in, in cranial sacral therapy, uh, osteopathy, those bones move. So, and then underneath the bones, there's a number of layers, but let's say there's the dura. And then underneath the dura is the cerebral spinal fluid and then the brain. And, and, and so by using and moving uh, the bones of the skull, we can affect the, the dura and the cerebral spinal fluid and, and therefore the functioning within the central nervous system and the physiology in general. And, and, and the, the belief is that you can either have a mechanical impingement, a bone out of place, much like seeing the chiropractor having an adjustment, or you can just have a, a disharmony between the parts. They're out of sync. So think timing chain in your car and the, and the pistons are off and your engine is running rough. So similar idea, we can kind of tweak the timing chain in the cranial sacral system to bring that system and its in its synchronized movements back into a timing and a rhythm. And that restoration of rhythm uh, equals a restoration of health and function. Ah, I see. So, Got it. So that's what we're doing is we're kind of restoring the rhythmic nature of the mechanism. But then, of course, it goes way beyond the mechanism. And, and again, that's why it's a whole show. We wanted to talk about Got it breath of life and potency, <laughs> all of that. But, you know, I, I have, I, as you're speaking, I'm imagining volleyball players with the ball hitting their head constantly, um, rugby players, American football players, or anyone who's, who is having a lot of head contact. Hmm? Is that, should they have a craniosacral therapist on site? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, they should. Uh, okay, and, and, and it will say that again. We because you know we think of cranial the 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 name you know is in like in the name is cranial head sacrum the bone in the pelvis the the kind of the cornerstone of the pelvis is the sacrum, and the dura runs from inside the skull down the spinal cord into the sacrum. So hence the name cranial sacral, and then the dura is what we call the core link. And so it holds the brain, the spinal cord, but then all the peripheral nerves come out of through pierce the dura and go into the body. So we presume any any um, impingement on the body uh, is a problem to this core system, the craniosacral system. And Got it. so it could be a soccer player heading a ball, but it equally could be you know uh, you know a, a you know a a torn cruciate ligament in a football player that you could equally address through um, craniosacral therapy because of that linkage. Um, yeah. Or someone sitting in the office weird or someone in an accident or someone, there's so many different influences or scenarios you could put yourself through where you would need this sort of, okay. So let, let's bring this back to the, the listener. Like, you know, when you start thinking about how your system gets out of whack and you have to kind of realign your system, what are some of the most common ways our system gets, um, you know, al you know, misaligned or aligned improperly? Sure. So, um, and and then just do we want to take this kind of like at a brain level and, and yes, stay there, kind, yes. Of, kind of where you started us off, kind of yes. around like trauma and stress and, and get kind of, it. yeah, yep. So. So yeah, so the, so brains are amazing. I mean, they're they're 
incredibly powerful. They're incredibly resilient, uh, multiple redundancies within the brain so that if something gets knocked off, there's another system that can take over. They're highly plastic, which is they can change their wiring, uh, you know, dynamically. But with all of that resilience, they're also incredibly sensitive. And so it doesn't take much to throw a brain off in a, in a, in a, in a significant, meaningful, life-changing way. And so, so this is, it's a really curious thing that you have both of these qualities in the same organ. And uh, so, so you take something like trauma and, and I mean, you know, and then we'd say trauma is, you know, it's too generic. We'd have to say like, are we talking like, like early life, like developmental trauma, or are we talking a single trauma as in a single event, like being in a car accident or, or, you know, a, um, again, a, a, witnessing a, somebody dying witnessing or something. something or, a, you know, again, a divorce can be traumatic. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. Um, so even the word trauma just has so much in it, but, but we can say some things kind of generically, which is um, when, when we're, around a, a traumatic event involved in it, there are neurotransmitters that'll be released that are related to trauma. And those neurotransmitters can hang out at the synapses long after the trauma. I mean, decades later, those neurotransmitters associated with that traumatic event can still be there, kind of affecting how those synapses work, affecting how information is moving through the brain and how computation is being done. And so, so it could be like that, and that's kind of on a, you know, on a neurotransmitter level, but also we can think of how, you know, from a neuroplasticity and we can think of some of the, the organs like the hippocampus and the amygdala. So down in kind of the limbic brain that those structures you know, they're meant to have a, 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 like a balanced input on what's happening. Like they, they have an opinion, but they don't run the show, but then you have something like trauma. And what can happen is those structures can, can gain a disproportionate sway on the system. So a person Mm. more fear-based, more avoidant, uh, because of the neural input coming from these structures that that have become hypersensitized um, in that traumatic event, uh, or again a series of traumatic events, because you know, there's a lot of possibilities. And so, you know, we can look at the the level of the neurotransmitter and say there was change there. We can look at the level of of brain region and say this brain region is now no longer neurotypically participating in the system it's disproportionate too much too little and then we could go through the whole brain and kind of talk about this like for example ptsd so ptsd is is generally not one uh you know uh difficult event right that it it's it takes typically takes a bit more a lot of individual variation here um and and it's 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 not helpful necessarily to the individual to be too uh, loose with the language, because of course there are people who can present with PTSD, and that came from a single event. That is entirely possible, but we're talking kind of somewhat in general, kind of statistically, we wouldn't think of it that way. But to say in PTSD, one of the reasons why that's challenging to treat 
is what we know from a, a neurophysiological standpoint is there's two regions in the brain, kind of an anterior part of the cingulate and a posterior part of the cingulate. And they have very specific jobs to do around, let's just say feeling. So, so this kind of this hybrid between thinking and emotion, we're going to call feeling. So there's this communication that happens between these two very important brain structures in PTSD. And basically what happens is, is they reverse. And so the, the thing that, that would take a neurotypical person, an environment, a, a set of stimuli that would be calming to a neurotypical person for the PTSD person will be arousing. So instead of their system coming down, their system will will go up, right? So let's so, say so let's say you're at a concert and you hear some something loud. For someone who's sort of ordinary neurotypical, they would just kind of enjoy the concert. Someone who has post PTSD, PTSD, something could signal that stimuli you're speaking about and trigger a response because on these synapses there are these inactive or, or maybe you can just explain that a little bit more clear. What sure. is actually happening there? Yeah. 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 So, so, so a couple, couple of things there. So one, what I was, the, what I was just saying was really kind of more on the level of, of brain kind of brain region and patterns of communication. So, yes. so, so of course those involve neurotransmitters, but, but at that moment it wasn't talking on the level of neurotransmitter. Um, but it's just how information moves through the system. In a way, you could think plumbing, right? That that you have an expectation that you turn on the, the cold water tap and cold water comes out. But if you turned on the cold water tap and hot water came out, that could be confusing, right? Like, it's like, oh, that's not supposed to happen. So think more like that with the PTSD. I see. Something got it. Got it. Got it. The neurotypical person, something that's calming is arousing for the PTSD person. And for the for the for a person who um again neurotypical, you're in an environment that's maybe overstimulating, that would be arousing. Like you're starting to feel anxious, like, oh I, you know, like I don't like this, it's too much. For the PTSD person, that will be calming. Like their system will actually settle with a lot of kind of activity, you know, chaos, whatever. And so so we just see this kind of reversal of the system so so that a calming environment is anxiety producing for the PTSD person and kind of a chaotic environment is calming for them. And, and so we have this kind of reversal of the mechanism. And that's what makes it difficult to treat because what do you do? What happens too often is like a person has PTSD and say, oh, well, you know, we're going to meditate. Well, that's like pretty much the worst thing you could ask that nervous system to do, right? Here's a thing that is, is pretty much guaranteed to trigger you. Let's do that, right? So <laughs> as we start to understand this, then, I mean, even for myself, in, in my years before I was um, really doing kind of the, the psychophysiology side and the brain side, when I was doing uh, more, like say when I was just doing my cranial sacral, um, I'm going to say, hey, look, you know, we're going to put you on a table in a quiet room with low lighting and soft music, and I'm just going to put my hands on you, and and everything is going to be great, right? Not for most people with PTSD, like that's going to put them into a high anxious state. 
quite likely, if not triggering in itself, quite likely to be susceptible to being triggered very quickly. A memory, a flashback, a something, because the system is in the the wrong environment for its uh, status quo. Okay. And so that was a learning for me of, I didn't know this about the brain. And now that, again, there's research and we understand now what we we would do in in a in PTSD, and <clears throat> again, it doesn't have to be, it's just PTSD is kind of an extreme version of this, but think of it as a spectrum. We all have some amount of this, right? And, and I'm just talking about the more extreme version. Um, so now what we would do is actually work using neurofeedback, neurostimulation to, to try and rewire that circuit back to a neurotypical pattern so that yeah. the system can take in calming and regulating uh, stimulus like it the system itself can be regulated versus for PTSD calm and regulated equals you know fear anxiety uh, constriction priming for the unwanted event right so so it's so so being able to change that wiring um is is part of what we do you know you know you again and how how would you go about the rewiring of those circuits sure so so one of the best approaches for rewiring the brain is neurofeedback and and neurofeedback just say something quick about it is it's what we call an operative um, conditioning operant conditioning paradigm so it's pavlov and the dog right give them food and a bell and then eventually you ring the bell and they salivate because you've paired Mm -hmm. these stimulus so we have a brain computer interface where we've we've got eeg so electrodes that are measuring brainwave activity that brainwave activity is going into a computer it's being compared to a neurotypical database of age and gender match brains so how is my brain doing compared to a database of neurotypical brains and then on the screen is some type of feedback to me mostly we have people play games so they're driving a car they're flying a plane they've got pac-man running around eating up things so you're playing a game and you're doing well in the game the more your brain is moving energy and information around in a neurotypical way the, okay. the less neurotypical the movement of energy and information in the brain, the feedback is is more of a negative feedback. If you're flying a plane, the plane is wobbly and going off target. And so just naturally, your system wants the plane to fly straight, wants it to fly yes. like a plane. You've got a target, yes. you want to hit the target, you want to win the game. So your brain just naturally wants to do that. And it's getting feedback millisecond by millisecond on how it's moving information. So what neural pathways is it firing? In what way? How? And and so how is it doing computation? And and then it's being given corrective measures of like, no, not like that, more like this. And so we can repattern something like the salience network, which is, so salience is what are, what is our brain assigning as important right now? Mm-hmm. What's salient? Person. Yeah, yeah. What's salient? So, for a traumatized person, that might be hypervigilance and monitoring the environment for anything threatening. That could be a sound. It could be a, a movement. 
just any, you know, is or their internal state. So not just the external environment, their internal state, interoception for any feeling of discomfort, which is again, a cue of something must be wrong. If I, if, if, you know, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, there must be a reason. So they're, they're hypervigilant to these cues of safety. And, and so that's part of the salience network. So if we can rewire that salience network so that that person isn't spending as much time monitoring the environment for p- potential threat, then this is how we can rewire the brain kind of away from a trauma response and towards a more neurotypical response. And, and that's what we see in terms of clinical outcomes. That's, you know, that's what happens. Um, so neurofeedback is one of the best for doing that. We can also do what's called neuromodulation. So this is not a learning-based system like neurofeedback where the brain is figuring out how to solve a problem and changing its wiring. In neuromodulation, it's a bit more like we're doing something to the brain. We're putting an input in saying, do this. And, 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 and so we can have a similar effect only. It's a little different than, than say, I think of neurofeedback as like, it's a learning paradigm. It's like going to school and learning something. versus going to physical therapy and having the physical therapist work on your sore knee and then your knee is better, but it's the same knee, right? Like when you're done Mm. physical therapy, it's just your knee. When you Mm. learn something, like you have a whole new skill set, like the world is open to you in a way that it wasn't before. So it's, you know, when your brain learns something, it's a new brain. When your knee goes through physical therapy, it's just your same knee right? Only you don't have the problem that you had, hopefully, when you went in. So there's different, there's two different paradigms between therapy and learning. Neuromodulation is therapy. It's like, oh, you've got a little, you've sprained your brain, we're going to help you recover from that sprain. Now that symptom is gone, but it's basically still your same brain. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's just kind of a quick version of like, how, how would I now in my clinic work with something like somebody comes in with, again, presenting with trauma or anxiety or depression or ADHD is we, we look at all of that as just dysregulation. Mm. We, we don't really think of the diagnostic label, right? It it's dysregulation. <clears throat> There's something in the system that isn't regulated the way it ought to be. We go about doing what we do, which is regulate dysregulation. We get things regulated. Those things called symptoms go away. But I like to say, like, we don't treat anxiety. We regulate dysregulation. Yeah, I like that. And I'm imagining there's somebody listening going, Tim, I really love your podcast. But the chances of me traveling to the States to the Bhakti uh, (laughs) Wellness Center, the chances of me you know, experiencing this. What can I do as a listener over the next couple of days to start regulating my dysregulated system? <laughs> yeah. So a couple things. Um, I want to, uh, let's see, maybe I'll start from slightly more complex and work to slightly simpler. Okay. So, so again, my company Cerebral Fit, we do um, devices. So we do, like, I, I hop on people on Zoom, you know, people all over the world, we just hop on a Zoom, we do a consult, do a health intake, 
I come up with a treatment plan and say, here's what I would do if I were you, be this device or this pairing of devices, put that in a box, ship it to them when they get it. We hop on a Zoom, walk through how to set it up, what their protocols are going to be, and then kind of stay in touch with them over the days and weeks, months, years, as they are using the devices to regulate their uh, brain and nervous system. So, so that's one option. Now, a person can can do this kind of low tech, and you can do it no tech also. It is the tech is like assistive, right? And, and so we, we we talk, you know, in your questions, you asked about, you know, the, the driving, right? And and I said, so driving is is just getting from point A to point B. And you can do that by walking, or you can have mm. a technological assistance, right? A horse, mm. a mm. bike, a car, mm. right? Sure. This is, technological assistance to accomplish your underlying goal, which is getting from point A to point B. So same thing here. We can do this in a low-tech way, but there's nothing wrong with adding technology in that it assists us doing the thing in a more efficient way. And, mm. and any of us would say, like, it would take me a long time to walk to Saskatoon to see my family. Yes. I'd rather fly, actually, two hours. This is very efficient. Um, so so low-tech um, one of my absolute favorites is heart rate variability. So again, heart rate variability is big area. You, you know, I, it's a, it's a it's a long, deep conversation. Nice thing is these days you can go on YouTube and and find some great talks. Um, Doctor Richard Gewertz is he's one of my favorites. He's a clinician. He's a researcher. Uh, he's a teacher. He has some great videos on YouTube on heart rate variability and, and, you know, just kind of a quick, like, here's the science, here's why it matters. Okay. Here's the practice, go for it. Right. So great, great option. And you can find those on our YouTube channel on the Bhakti wellness YouTube channel. You'll find some converts videos um, and on the cerebral fit channel, okay. um, but heart rate variability, basically it is the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, and the baroreceptors in the the vasculature in the the um, uh, carotid artery primarily. Um, so what we're doing is we're leveraging the fact that through our breathing, by regulating our breathing, we can affect our uh, respiratory rhythm. And that should, but it doesn't always, depending on the nature of our dysregulation, but it should affect our cardiac rhythm. And so we can bring kind of our, our cardiac rhythm. So that's not heart rate. This is heart rate variability, which is the beat, the time between beats. And we actually want to have a high variability of timing between our beats so that our heart is a little bit more like music and not a metronome, right? Oh, heart really? A metronome is bad. Oh, Very I didn't bad. know that. Yep. So if your heart and is beating consistently... That's not good. Like, well, if it's well, not inconsistent <laughs> patterns, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Consistent. Consistently is good. But no, that time between beats, you know, yes. the dub, lub dub, lub dub. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we vary. want that to be like half a second, one second, one and a half seconds, half a second. With variability in there. Got because it. what that means is your autonomic nervous system is very well attuned to your physiological needs. So your system is only working as hard as it needs to work to meet the demand of the moment, but it's not working harder or less, right? That's a well-attuned system. And that's what we want. That 
fat equals health and longevity. Like one of the things that we know about heart rate variability is it's our best predictor of all cause mortality, right? Which means a person with low heart rate variability is more likely to, to, to die early for their demographic. But not only are they more likely to die earlier, they're more likely to have more healthcare uh, uh, incidences between now and when they pass versus the person with high heart rate variability is more likely to live longer statistically, right? but they will have fewer in health incidences between now and when they pass. And, and so that one of those is longevity. That's important, but it's also quality of life. Right? And so heart rate variability is, a, is, a, is our best predictor for all-cause mortality, but also for our general, how many interactions are we going to have and of what nature with the healthcare system? And, and, and so, um, so yeah, so, health, so heart rate variability, this beat-to-beat -beat change, and it's the balancing between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So between our arousal system, I'm engaged, yeah. I'm alert, yeah. I'm responding to the world, and parasympathetic, rest and digest, I'm internal, I'm conserving energy, I'm doing repair and rejuvenation for my next round of response, right? And yes. again, a healthy system is doing that every second of the day. You're, you're not, like, you don't want your system to be like, you get up in the morning, you have your coffee, like you hit the on switch, you run at 100 until the end of your workday, and then you ramp down, like that, that no, right? Yeah. We want that the system is tweaking itself through the day. So, so this exercise people can do is so typically for an adult, uh, six breaths per minute is the average what we call a resonant frequency in in the heart rate variability that's going to balance the sides of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic, and recruit the baroreceptor reflex. Now. Ultimately, a person should do a resonant frequency determination, but that brings in technology to find out, are you a, a five breaths or a four and a half breaths or a seven breaths? But the average is six breaths. A person can just start there. Okay. You, can, you can count it. Um, you can download a, a app, free app on your smartphone that is a breath pacer that will just give you like an auditory tone for breathing. That'll just give you a sound to inhale and a sound exhale and inhale. So then you're going to breathe where you're breathing in for five seconds, out for five seconds, in for five seconds, out for five seconds. And you want to maintain that for something that looks like 20 minutes, right? So 20 minutes a day of heart rate variability, breathing at 20 breaths, or I mean, uh, at uh, six breaths per minute, five in, five out, no particular pause in between, right? And, and what we're doing here, hopefully, if all goes well, is our cardiac rhythm is moving towards our respiratory rhythm and our barrel reflex is moving towards that. And we get a, we get a, a synchronizing between the cardiac system, the respiratory system, and the barrel reflex. And the barrel reflex is basically blood pressure. It's mm. what is the level of, of tension in the the uh, vasculature wall that is allowing blood flow so how how big or small how contracted or relaxed and and in a sense how elastic is that so that's blood pressure side so we're normalizing blood pressure we're 
optimizing rest and digest and and synchrony and 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 therefore kind of reducing wear and tear on the system in that moment. So that's a very simple low tech way to regulate at the level of the brainstem. And that's what's important here is this is getting us at the level of the brainstem and the, the brainstem both, you know, feeds everything going down. So all of our organs are being run on that. So our kidneys, our liver, our pancreas, everything is being run there, but also Brainstem has a lot of innervation up into the higher brain. And, and so if we can regulate our brainstem, we can have a massive impact on our body and our cognition by that one simple activity. You know, what's extraordinary about this is all this brain science is coming out to show just how much of a correlation there is between breathing and breath work that you were explaining. And mental health. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, I'm just looking at the time and I'm like, okay, yeah. oh my God, we could have yeah. like a whole three-part series on this conversation because they're yeah. so loaded. Yeah. But I want to just kind of move to a close by making that strong link between whether it's a low tech where you used your you know, cranial technology or just low tech, which is breathing, irrespective of the approach. I want people to be aware that you know, small things like breathing can have an extraordinary impact on mental health. So please make that connection for us quicker. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. One of my, one of my clients. So this is about a 53 year old woman, um, chronic depression had been through decades of psychotherapy had been on and off every drug imaginable, I mean, she, she was really trying to be uh, healthy and 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 to live her fullest life, but but had this chronic depression, and so she came to us thinking, well, maybe maybe you can help me, and so we started off treating her like she was a chronic depression person. We mm-hmm. did neuroimaging, we we did all of that. The neuroimaging showed a uh, what looked like a traumatic brain injury. So we did some, you know, questioning with her and no place, you know, known, I've never had a traumatic brain injury, I've never had a concussion, eventually came forward that, oh, yeah, well, there was this time when I was 13 and I was on the ice and I slept and I fell and I cracked my head open and they take me to the hospital. We're like, yeah, that would qualify. But, you know, at that point in time, (laughs) there was no concussion diagnosis and she was never treated for it. So she didn't have the sense of having had a concussion because the doctor never told her. But her neuroimaging showed, and this is EEG, not MRI or PET or SPEC. This is EEG showing us functional neuroimaging. We could see the functional pattern of a concussion. So we switched her neurofeedback from treating depression to treating uh, traumatic brain injury. But with traumatic brain injury, there's often a change in the autonomic nervous system, the breathing. So we looked at her autonomics. Her autonomics were whacked. It's terrible. She had complete asynchrony between her sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So we got her doing heart rate variability breathing. Okay. Immediately, she started to report changes in that, you know, she was just a little bit more motivated around the house to get stuff done, things at work, relationships that had been challenging were less challenging. Her performance was going up, her general sense of like just kind of fulfillment and happiness at work. 
and and this really tight little restricted boundary she had around herself, which is a way uh, many of my depressed people and my um, PTSD people will ex- it describe their their life like they feel compressed, like shrink wrapped. Everything is really close. But she started to describe how that started to fill out. And she had more space and spaciousness around her. She could participate more and do more and her sleep got better and her energy level was better. And, you know, she started to become more interested in life. And the main thing we changed was her breathing. And we got her autonomic nervous system regulated. And that was the fundamental to all of the changes. We wouldn't have got the changes if we had just treated Incredible. her for depression. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So, so breathing really is, I mean, there's a reason why the great traditions have it as a fundamental practice, like in yoga pranayama. Um, And I will say like the heart rate variability breathing is nothing other than a bunch of scientists, you know, distributed scientists all over the world, studying the great traditions in the lab, looking at what kind of breathing practice has what effect. And what they noticed was this particular way of breathing um, had the strongest effect at regulating this particular part of the system. And so then that became heart rate variability. So it's it's kind of a Western scientific medical approach, medical intervention, but it's straight out of the traditions. All we've done is added science to it so we could more accurately apply it. And, And there's a lot of breathing that can do different things. But again, you can imagine if you're the person with PTSD and what your system doesn't do well with is arousal and you do a kind of breathing that increases arousal, that's going to make your symptoms worse, right? And so, yep. so it's the science of understanding this is, is what's allowing us to apply it more effectively and see like, like why does it help this person and not help this person? Well, there's a reason. And if we can understand the science of it, we can say, ah, you should not do this kind of breathing, but you should do this kind of breathing. Because um, again, for a person with PTSD, doing the heart rate variability, and I should say this because we just talked about a practice, is, is for the person who being regulated, being calm is is going to be problematic, which is a, a large population of the PTSD people or people with anxiety, being regulated is going to trigger anxiety. So do the heart rate variability, breathe, do the six breaths per minute breathing cautiously, understanding that for certain subset of people, it could lead to a panic attack. Oh, wow. So that doesn't mean don't do it. It just means know what you're walking into and and work with your system intelligently so if all you can do is two minutes of breathing and then that's it do two minutes and then in a week do two minutes and 30 seconds right and we can expand that window of tolerance but at your nervous system's pace to actually take it in and make it a nutrient and not make it reinforcing to the trauma pattern right got it I mean, for, for if you're still listening and you have followed the thread of this conversation to this point, then you actually get why we wanted to do this episode. If you tune your system using this sort of breathing uh, process, you're going to promote longevity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Boom. 
Boom. Absolutely. Boom. I mean, you know, it took us a while to get there, <laughs> but we, we eventually got there. And I appreciate the way you paced us through this conversation. You know, sometimes I know that the podcast medium often wants to promote quick fixes, quick hacks without understanding a foundational knowledge. People want to come on, listen to 10 minutes of, you know, something quick but I, I do believe after doing this podcast for nine years that there's a community of people out there who really want to understand. They want to they want to learn. They want to know what's happening in integrative medicine. They want to know what's happening uh, in terms of technology. And that's why I'm grateful you made time to come on the show. And I'm looking forward. I can already see a part two happening. I can already see a part two happening. And hopefully we can you know, develop some sort of relationship where we can even partner at some stage with your technology and offer it to this part of the world and other parts of the world. So Guy Audishaw, thank you so much for joining us on Brain and Brand Show for this episode. And I'm hoping we'll see you again soon. Absolutely. It was a delight chatting with you. <laughs>